Well, it is summer again, and that means time in the Psalms. And like last summer, it's helpful to remember that behind and beneath the Psalms, there is a worldview that flows from knowing the Lord himself, from knowing what he's like and and what he does. So we're going to look again at those worldview, uh, at their worldview, using these questions and answers that were developed by Jay Sklar. Miguel, can you pull those up for me? I'm going to read the question if you would read the answer. Who is the Lord? The God of steadfast love and justice. What does he do? He blesses and protects those who embrace his covenant from the heart, demonstrating his justice against those who rebel against him. When does he do these things? Often in the here and now, and certainly in the world to come. So what should we do? Embrace his covenant from the heart and wait patiently yet fervently for his justice. This is the worldview that we see displayed in Psalm 14. That's what we'll be looking at today. Uh, a, A psalm where David laments the state of humanity and the rebellious spirit that leads people to sin against the Lord and against other people. And yet David also expresses deep trust that not only does the Lord see that evil, he also does something about it. Uh, but we're gonna, So we're going to listen to David together so that we can share his lament and share his hope. But let's pray first. Let's pray together. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. To better understand this passage, we're going to ask three questions. First, what does it look like when God is considered irrelevant? What does it it look like when someone says there is no God? Second, what is the cost of that miscalculation? 
And then third, where's there room for hope? So let's start off with that question. What does it look like when God is considered irrelevant? When someone says there is no God? In a minor part of the restaurant at the end of the universe, which is itself a classic piece of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams playfully describes the total perspective vortex, a machine that inflicts the most savage psychic torture a sentient being can undergo. The treatment, he writes, lasts seconds, but the effects last the rest of your life. It was made by a man named Trin Tragula, who was a dreamer, a thinker, a speculative philosopher, or as his wife would have it, a, a person who's not very bright. And she would nag him incessantly, Adams writes, about the utterly inordinate amount of time he spent staring out into space or mulling over the mechanics of safety pins or doing spectrographic analyses of pieces of cake. Have some sense of proportion, she would say, sometimes as often as 38 times in a single day. And so he built the total perspective vortex just to show her. Adams explains the science behind the machine. Since, he says, since every piece of matter in the universe is in some way affected by other pieces of matter in the universe, it's in theory possible to extrapolate the whole of creation, every sun, every planet, their orbits, their composition, and their economic and social history from, say, a piece of cake. And so, he built the total perspective vortex just to show her. And into one end, he plugged the whole of reality as extrapolated from a piece of cake. And into the other end, he plugged his wife. So that when he turned it on, she saw in one instant the whole infinity of creation and herself in relation to it. The effect of seeing herself against infinity was, as you can imagine, mentally devastating. And Trin immediately realized something. If life is going to exist in a universe of this size, he thought, then the one thing it cannot afford to have is a sense of proportion. Adams is being funny here, of course, but he's also being insightful. You see what he's doing? He's pointing out how people tend to get by in this life by ignoring how small we are in relation to the universe. We tend to function as if we are the center of the universe, or at least very close to it. And it's that lack of perspective that makes the shock of being put into the total perspective vortex so destructive. In Adam's story, seeing yourself in relation to the infinite material universe is soul-crushing. 
The only way to live, then, is by ignoring the vastness of everything outside of yourself, either pretending it doesn't exist or that its existence is irrelevant. But that is where the scriptures say something very different. The only way to truly live is to see oneself in relation to the infinite living God and to embrace Him as He has revealed Himself. It's humbling, for sure, but acknowledging Him as the God who reigns over all is actually the starting point for life itself, as well as for joy. We see that in the start of Scripture, where in Genesis 1 and 2, God is shown to be the first cause of all things. He is the kingly creator who makes human beings, male and female, in His image as the crowning point of creation. And He makes them for the purpose of imaging Him, reflecting Him to the rest of creation. In those first chapters, God lives with His people. The infinite God in close relationship, in covenant relationship with His people. And as they acknowledge Him as their God and live out of that knowledge, everything is right in the world. Walking in the light of their infinitely good God, humanity enjoyed a beautiful relationship with Him, with each other, with creation, and even with themselves. In those earliest pages, we see how life flourishes when humanity embraces this God as its God. But if embracing the God who is, is how life flourishes, then what about the person, what about the person who denies him? According to the scriptures, it is that person who lives without reference to God, to the God of the universe, who considers him irrelevant. That is the one who faces a terrifying reality. And that is the person that Psalm 14 talks about. Listen again to verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now the fool here is not a fool because of any intellectual lack. This isn't a silly person. A person, it says, is considered foolish when they reject the reality of God. Specifically, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. And you notice that it isn't just the person who says with their words, there is no God. I mean, honestly, even today, there really are not many people who would say that out loud, especially in this town. But there are a lot of people who say it in their heart, functioning as if God is not there living as if the king of the universe is irrelevant. As one writer puts it, the assertion, there is no God, is in fact treated in Scripture not as a sincere, if misguided, conviction, 
but as an irresponsible gesture of defiance. In other words, whenever humans do what is right in their own eyes, their heart proudly says, there is no God who matters. But we weren't made for that. Which is why the psalmist describes such a person as corrupt. A human who lives by such a creed is not what humans were meant to be. And from that fundamental distortion comes all kinds of evil. If we're asking what it looks like when a person considers God to be irrelevant, then the first answer is there in verse 1. They do abominable deeds, David says. Which, are, which is to say, they do things that God considers to be deeply wrong. The emphasis there is on the Godward offensiveness of their life and their actions. Not only is God not honored as God, but people actively do things that are contrary to how he says life works best. They count things that God made as being more important to life than God himself. That is to say, they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and thus they break peace with their Creator. And so that fundamental sin of rejecting God will always show itself, as another writer puts it, by flouting God's law and substituting one's own rules for life, the most pervasive of which is the rule that says, I do what makes me happy. But there's a second facet of how it looks when people count God as irrelevant. David says, there is none who does good. By that, we understand him to mean that there are none who actually do good to others. He's, he seems to be speaking there of the way that humans wrong each other, that horizontal aspect of relationship. And in the context of this passage, he's not just saying that they fail to do the kind of good that Philip has been talking about from Hebrews 13. No, they actually go beyond that into doing active harm. Look at verse 4. That looks like evildoers eating up God's people as they eat bread, or like they eat bread. Since they don't believe that there is a God who will hold them accountable for their actions, then they give free reign to selfish appetites. They will count the wealth, the freedom, even the lives of other people as something to be taken, something to be consumed. In verse 6, it looks like shaming the plans of the poor. The meaning of that is a little unclear, but it seems to be talking about either the way the powerful use the poor for their own gain, or, or it could be how the irreligious often mock the future hope of God's people. But either way, the point is that those who count God as irrelevant will not respect the image of God in others. 
They won't treat them with the full dignity that they deserve. Instead, they will use them. Now, David is not saying that people who reject God never do anything that's kind or generous for others. Of course they do. We see that all the time. But what he is saying is that whatever good is done without reference to God, without reverence to God, it fails to meet God's standard of good because it is done apart from God, who is the source of all goodness. As Augustine said, For until a man know God, the one God, he cannot do goodness. Rebellion against God may dress up in the clothes of goodness, but it covers a heart that is still shrugging at God and counting Him as insignificant. And it's foolish to think that God can't see that because God does see that. Look again at verse 2, where God looks not just on the individual fool who boldly rejects Him, but he looks out on all of humanity. He looks down on all the children of men to see if any acknowledge him rightly, to see if any seek him wholeheartedly. And we hear his assessment of his search in verse 3. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. Now this word for corrupt here is a little different than it is in verse 1. But it's not actually really any milder because it refers to the problem of sin going all the way down, rotten to the core, as it were. But if God's assessment in verse 3 is true, that there is none who does good, not even one, then why is it that there seem to be two different groups of people in this passage? The fools are obviously one group, but in verse 5 we see the other. He refers to the generation of the righteous, or that is to say the, the class of people, the kind of people who are counted as righteous in God's sight. And if that's true, that there are some who fools and some who are righteous in God's sight, then why is it that in the New Testament the Apostle Paul quotes this passage in Romans 3, driving home his point that all of humanity is corrupt and under sin and deserving of God's wrath. Well, think about it in this way. In David's context, in the original context of this psalm, the foolish people that he had in mind were the Gentiles, those who did not know the Lord, the God of Israel. It's actually true that David may even be speaking of some of his own people who know about the Lord, but don't treat him as Lord. They are the fools of verse 1. And the pages of Scripture after Genesis 3 illustrate with painful detail the corruption of humanity that lives as if God is irrelevant. But what is the cost of that miscalculation? You see it in verse 5. It says, There, 
There they are in great terror. There will come a time when for those who reject the Lord, terror comes. And it will come in the form of the Lord himself pulling back the veil and showing them that he was and he is and he is to come. And then it will be as the prophet Isaiah said, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. The cost of rejecting the God who is is one day discovering that he is and that there is no refuge from him apart from being in him. But there are those who know him, who trust in the Lord as their God. In David's day, they are God's people, like you see in verse 4. They are part of the generation called righteous in verse 5, who enjoy the presence and the protection of the Lord. He is with them, it says. He is the refuge of the poor. He's not saying that they're sinless, but he is saying that there are some people who do live with a sense of true proportion. They know that there is a God who has revealed himself, and they cling to him as their hope. You can hear that longing, that hopeful longing, Coming out of David in verse 7, when he says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When, he speaks confidently, when the Lord restores the fortunes or well-being of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Though it may seem at first, though it may seem so at first, David and Paul are not at odds in their use of this text. David makes a distinction between those who reject the Lord and those who embrace Him. And he's comforting God's people with the promise that God sees them and He will do justice in the end. He will be their refuge on that day when He reveals Himself to all flesh once again. And we, as God's people, must endure in our confidence in Him But Paul's point is the one that you and I need to grasp and wrestle with first. Paul's point is that fundamentally speaking, we have all rejected the Lord. We have a need to embrace him and to receive his grace. And so David is speaking as from the perspective of one who already rests in the Lord and Paul is driving us to see our need of the Lord because all of us are fools. All of us are prone to rebellion because sinful hearts are always acting from the belief that there is no God who matters. We've seen, we've seen today that when a person rejects the reality of God and counts him as irrelevant, it shows itself in how a person relates to God's law and how a person relates to others. And don't we see 
the same vertical and horizontal expressions of godlessness here and now, even in ourselves? Don't we see it in the idols of fitness and beauty and popularity, the idols of comfort and pleasure and security? It's the same sin that was beneath the old slave trade, and it's the sin that's beneath the new Jim Crow and the subtler forms of racism that lead us to hold our political views more tightly than we hold to the image of God in all people? Don't we see it in the sin that drives men to use others to satisfy their own lust, whether that's sexual or for monetary gain or just for power? Don't we see this sin beneath all the other sins that we see? whether it's treating lesser things as ultimate things or mistreating fellow humans, it all comes from from a heart that treats God as irrelevant. And that brings us to this critical point. Because it's easy, it's easy for me to put myself on the comfortable side of this passage, that side with God, leaving other people in the camp of fools. But when you and I step into that total perspective vortex that is the Bible, when we see the infinitely good God who created and rules over all, then we are called to really live with a sense of proportion and say of ourselves, I'm a fool. I've been a fool. I've lived in so many ways as if there is no God. I've done so many things that are deeply offensive to Him. And I've treated others so poorly, thinking that they exist to serve me instead of the other way around. I know what I deserve, but I also know that I can't bear it. Our first thoughts, our first good thoughts when we enter into that total perspective vortex of standing in the presence of a holy God, our first good thoughts are actually thoughts of confession. That's why the very first membership vow that we have as when we come together, when we join the church, is simply to acknowledge ourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure and without hope except in His sovereign mercy. But if that's our starting point, if, if we're all guilty, if we're all corrupt, if we are not what we should be, if we do treat God as irrelevant and therefore deserve His wrath, then where is there room for hope? There is room for hope because what David longed to see, God has done through Jesus, his son. Jesus is the one who came, who came and was the only one who, as the the Father was looking for any who understand, for any who seek God, Jesus is the one who understood and said, Father, behold, I've come to do your will. 
Jesus is the one who came and himself suffered at the hands of evildoers. They used their power against Jesus' life as if his life was a small thing to be taken, to be used in their larger purposes. And they shamed his hope in God, even as he hung on the cross. But Jesus is the one who turned all of that for the good of his people. Jesus says that all along he was doing that to suffer in our place. Dying a fool's death so that fools like you and me might live before him, basking in the glory of his infinite grace. And as we cling to him in humble faith, repenting of our foolishness and resting in him again and again and again, God says, God assures us that he is restoring us for the purpose which he has made us for in the first place. Not only does, as we cling to Christ, not only does he forgive our foolish sins against him, but he is restoring us, recreating us into the image of Jesus to live in line with ultimate reality. That there is a king and there is a kingdom. And his spirit is working in us, causing us more and more to live lives that acknowledge him with our lips and with through our lives of obedience while doing good to others. Remember, there's not just a Godward restoration that's going on here. There's also a horizontal where God is rescuing us in Christ and leading us outward to do good to others. As Hebrews said, Jesus offered himself without blemish to God in order to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Or again, it says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our prayer, may God answer it in us today, our prayers that God would cause us to really live more and more with a sense of proportion. Yes, a sense of how deeply our sin has offended our good God, but may we live with an even greater sense of our infinitely gracious Savior, rejoicing with gladness because He has died and He has risen and He will come again. Until he comes, though, may we be a praying people and a doing people. We don't have time to unpack all of this, but I want you to be praying. Romans 8, verses 19 through 25. I want you to be crying out to God as his children so that he might help you endure through the sufferings of this present time while believing that soon and very soon the eternal weight of glory will be revealed. I want you to be praying that. And I also want you to be doing what God has called his people to do. Like he says through Isaiah, he told his people then, learn to do good. We have a lot of unlearning to do, but we can learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. 
and be people of your Father, children imitating your Father, as Jesus said, to do good even to your enemies. Because even if a person is corrupt in our eyes, even if a person is corrupt in our eyes, we cannot treat them as they treat us. That is not the way of Christ. And think, too, that if God can restore our corruption, may He not also restore theirs. May He not use us to show them His graciousness as we image Him to them. We are respecting the image of God in them. Seeing that the image of God that remains even in the worst of humanity compels us to treat them with love and respect. Through such kindness, we leave them witness that there is a God and He is good. The world says to you that your greatest problem is outside of you and the solution is within you. But through His Word, the, scripture, the, the Lord says to us, your greatest problem is within you and the solution is outside of you. Here in front of you, the Lord Himself shows you that He Himself is the solution to all of the sin and all of the fallenness that we live in. And by His death and resurrection, Jesus is restoring us, working in us by His Spirit to cause us more and more to live in line with true reality. If you've lost sight of that, if your sense of proportion is off, May this be the correction that you need. May you see in the body and the blood of your Savior the goodness of your King and the goodness of His kingdom. Because by faith in Jesus, He is yours, even as you are His. Jesus came to give Himself freely on the cross. And He gives Himself freely to you here as well. He's not giving himself as another sacrifice for sin. That's already been done once and for all. But he is giving himself to you here to feed you, to strengthen you while you wait for him. But he says, behold, I'm coming soon.